it has come to my attention that the joke that I shared last week, I actually experienced it. Now, you might remember that the punchline, well, first of all, the lawyer is asked by the pastor, you know, what do you do when you make a mistake? And, and you remember the, the lawyer says, well, I mean, if it's a big mistake, I correct it. And if it's not, I just let it go. And he asked the pastor, so what do you do? And the pastor's response was, <laughs> if I, I, I may accident, how does he say? He says, there are times in which I mean to say, Satan is the father of all liars, but instead I said Satan is the father of all lawyers, so I let it go. <laughs> now, last week, I did that very thing, and I meant to say liars, and I started, yeah, um, yeah there, there, there's one time in which I remember that I said Satan is the father of all, and in my mind, I'm thinking Say liars, say liars. I looked at it, liars, and the word lawyers came out, and the joke made no sense whatsoever. Yes, I meant to say Satan is the father of all lawyers, and instead I said Satan is the father of all lawyers. That's why I heard crickets last week. <laughs> anyway, my point is Satan truly is the father of all liars, and not lawyers, maybe some, but not all by any means. But Satan is the father of lies, is he not, church? He is. <laughs> and the, the truth, though, is that he lies, the reality is that he lies to us about the very nature and character of God. <laughs> and without realizing it, we start believing those lies. And especially when our enemy, the devil, is attacking us, and he wants to destroy this intimate relationship that we have with God, and so he begins speaking lies. Is God really good? Now, just like back in the garden, Genesis 3, did God really say? And he wants to make you start questioning and wondering, well, wait a second. And he'll remind us of situations, if not the very situation that we are presently in. Is God really good? Is God really just? Look at all the unfair things that have happened in your life. And he's supposed to be a good God, really? Is God really loving? Then why did he allow this in my life? And we start listening to these lies, and because of some hurts, Church, we start believing them. We start wondering, we start questioning, we start coming to these wrong conclusions. Maybe God is not as loving as I thought he was. And Satan will draw our attention away from truth, from God's word, through circumstances. Hard circumstances that we're going through. Satan is the father of all lies. He is our adversary. And we've been talking about what it means to love our enemies. I'm going to conclude the, <coughs> the series with this sermon. To do that, I want us to look at a prophet by the name of Habakkuk. So I want you to turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. You may find it on page 1381, if you have my Bible. 
good luck in your own. Maybe turn to the table of contents. It's not a book that is readily read. It's not a book that many people pour, uh, you know, time and energy and studying and, and applying, but it has a very rich, rich application that we're going to see today. If you're in a situation right now in which the enemy is attacking you and you're stepping back and you're just saying, whoa, God, what is going on here? Where are you in my situation right now? The enemy has crossed the line and I'm trying to fight back and God, I'm losing. And I'm not just losing in a little way, I'm losing in a big way. What's going on here? <laughs> God, are you good? Are you just? Are you loving? April 20th, 1999. A movie just came out entitled, I Am Not Ashamed. And it's about the Columbine Massacre on Columbine High School in Colorado. I would venture to say that everybody in this room has heard of the Columbine Massacre. 13 students were killed, numerous seriously injured. Classmates were gunned down in front of the survivors. Traumatic experience for those high school students. Where was God in the midst of that? And we can start thinking. And, and, and it's easy to kind of just, well, you know, God was there and we just didn't see him, blah, blah, blah. And, and what about Rachel Scott's mom? The movie focuses on that young lady. And you see that she is she claims to be a Christian. And you know where the story's gonna go. Much of her life that's portrayed in the movie is taken from her journal. And she is trying to follow Christ, and she gets into a group that's really focused on ministry, and she begins to feel this tear in her soul. And she starts dabbling heavily into the things of the world. She falls for a guy who is absolutely not a follower of Christ, and she's kind of just toe-dipping, if you will. She's kind of playing the line. She's kind of one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom, and she is caught. And then she comes to a crisis in her life with regard to this guy and is seriously hurt. And she asks this question, God, where are you in all of this mess in my life? And she went looking for satisfaction in this world as a Christian, or at least she claimed. And she found it in the world, and she didn't find it in Christ. Now, I'll be honest with you. This is a movie in which I, I'm not a crier. Do, are there any of you other people out there? You're just not criers when you watch a movie. I'm not a crier. I'm not a crier. Some of you are sympathetic criers so that you're not a crier, but if the person next to you is crying, you start bawling. Well, I'm not a sympathetic crier. Some of my family are. Um, but my wife, I'm sitting next to my wife as we're watching this movie, and we are bawling our eyes out. 
powerful movie. If you haven't seen the movie, I am ashamed. I would encourage you to do that. I, I think it's a new release, isn't it? I'm not ashamed. What did I say? I am ashamed. I am ashamed that I just said. No, the title of the movie is I Am Not Ashamed. And it comes from, from Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I'm wondering, as I'm watching this, her life played out, I just, I'm thinking, who created this movie? Honestly, I started getting angry, and I'm just thinking, she's like the heroine of the, she's like the focus of this movie? Look what lifestyle she's living. And then God just breaks her, totally breaks her. I'm not going to share any more than to say that God had a sovereign purpose for all of this. But she, just like the movie watcher, we see only one frame at a time. We don't see the end. We don't see what's now, what, 17 years down the road and what God's in. We, we're looking at one frame at a time, one scene at a time. And her heart is absolutely broken. She's turned inward. And she's wondering, God, where are you in this? This is so hard and so painful. Where are you? And many of us have asked that question. God, where are you? She realizes her compromise. She repents and she chooses to live for Jesus at that point. And God, through all of this, God has a plan. And her life did not turn out the way her mom wanted it, the way her siblings wanted it, the way she wanted it, or anyone else. But in the sovereign purposes of God, it turned out exactly the way he desired, that he planned. Now, you remember in... The last couple of two weeks, we've talked about what happens when the enemy crosses the line and seeks to harm us. You know, last week, focusing on persecution, but he crosses the line in a number of different ways for several possible reasons. We looked at how he, he God allows him, and I'm going to purposely word it the way, God allows him to cross the line to refine our character. And he, he, he does that with Rachel Scott, and she allows, God allows her to go through some serious hard, hard times, bro, a broken heart to refine her. Because God, people, we serve a jealous God, and, and, and he wants our full attention. He wants our full focus on him. He wants to capture our heart, not just a part of it. He, he's a jealous God, and he wants all of it. Jesus, looking at the rich young ruler, the reason why he said you need to sell everything if you're going to follow me is because Jesus knew if he just said, yeah, yeah just come follow me, you're, you're, you'll be good, because Jesus knew he wouldn't, because there was already a God in his life, and Jesus was going to take second place, and money was that young man's God. That's what he loved more than anything in this world. And with that challenge, sell everything and give to the poor, he walked away. His money was first place in his life, and it captured his full attention. 
So number one, God wants to refine our character. God also wants to train us. And we looked a little bit at David and how as a fugitive, not his own fault, he was constantly on the run from King Saul. False accusations of conspiracy, blah, blah, blah. From an insecure king. God, where are you in all of this? And yet at the the end of many Psalms, David concludes, yet I will praise you. God was training him, talent, skills, knowledge, etc., because God was preparing him to be a king. Another reason would be that God uses difficult circumstances, in my life many times, the lack of finances to redirect me. God, I want to go in this direction, and suddenly there is no money. What do I do now? God just closes a door, and I'm, I'm stubborn. I'll keep pushing. Until finally, I realize the door is locked, or I need to just go through another door. Maybe some of you are right there, pounding on that locked door, and God is saying, "Ah, this way, please. But God allows these hard circumstances for numerous reasons. How do we resist the tendency to play jury and judge to condemn God as unjust, unfair, unloving. The title of the sermon this morning is The Big Picture. Habakkuk chapter 1, are you there with me? (coughs) Let's start with verse 1. It's three chapters, so you know right now I am not going to be reading all three chapters. We are going to give like an overview of this book. Starting with verse 1, he says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Does that sound familiar? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Their strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. And justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. I'm going to just pause right there. I'm only going to be reading, obviously, selected verses through this book. But I want us to look at a five, five different things that happened, and I'm going to need to look at them briefly and focus on one or two of them more deeply. The setting of this book is the destruction of Jerusalem in 605 B.C. And we understand that there were actually three deportations. In 605, in 597, and in 586, the eventual total destruction of Jerusalem in the temple by Nebuchadnezzar, 586 B.C. Three deportations. Daniel, you're familiar with him. He was deported in the first deportation, the first sacking of Jerusalem, Ezekiel in the second, Habakkuk, we do not know if he was alive during this time, but his book focuses in that direction. And there are some things that he says that imply that maybe he was a contemporary of Daniel and Ezekiel. Jeremiah, another prophet during this time, the weeping prophet, you may be familiar with that term, he stayed in Jerusalem, was not deported, and he challenged the remaining Jews to repent and follow the Lord. 
And that was his job. But Habakkuk is looking out, no doubt, probably after the death of Josiah, a righteous king, and Josiah's sons, one after the other, and grandson, take the throne, and they are unrighteous kings. Israel has become apostate. Because of their sin, notice says, therefore the law is paralyzed. You see that in verse 4. The law is paralyzed. You see, the law has a purpose. Moses gave the law to the people so that they would follow God and they needed instruction in how to do this. What does righteousness even look like? So the law was supposed to reflect the righteousness of God. And of course, if Israel or anyone seeking to understand the righteousness of God and read the law to understand that chose a different pathway, the Bible calls that sin or rebellion. And so the law calls them back. It convicts them of sin and calls them back to true righteousness. So the law shows us how we can live before a holy God. And if not, then number two calls us back, calls us or or, or convicts us and leads us back to him. But because they were steeped in their sin and they had gone apostate and only a small remnant truly followed the Lord, Habakkuk describes it this way, the law has become paralyzed. It's purposeless. The people have been numb to the law. I mean, they read it every week, if not more, and it's like words that go in one ear and out the other, over their head. They're numb to it. Wah, 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 wah. That's all they heard. You ever see uh, 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 Charlie Brown, and he's sitting in class, and we never hear what the teacher's actually saying. All that we hear is wah, 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 wah. And that is how many had become wah, 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 wah. Yeah, and that's all they got. That's all they heard. And there was no conviction of sin, no spirit of God leading them to repentance. And the law had been paralyzed. And the very purpose of the, the nation of Israel to be a light in a fallen world, that light, had been reduced to maybe a pilot light. And it had all but gone out. And and Habakkuk appeals and says, in essence, God, you got to stop this. Well, God has a plan. And we need to see just how favorably inclined Habakkuk was to this plan. So what is God's answer? What is God's plan? Verse (coughs) 5. Look at the nations and watch, God says, and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. And he begins to talk about the destruction. The Babylonians will be wreaking nation after nation, expanding their kingdom. And God's pathway to bringing justice that Habakkuk is demanding 
is severe punishment. Now, let me, let me just remind us that God allows at least three reasons for the enemy to cross that line and bring persecution, hardship, maybe in the form of a circumstance, possibly a person or group of people. And he will allow this, yes, to bring discipline, to shape our character. And sometimes just shaping our character like patience, it's, it's not because of like a sin in our life, but it does develop character. But God does allow discipline in our lives to shape our character. But there are other reasons to train us, I mentioned, to redirect us. But in this book, we're going to focus on just one of them. Understand, though, the implications are much broader than just what this book, fo- just what this book focuses on. Punishment or discipline. Okay? God was going to bring the Babylonians, to invade the land of Israel. He was going to purify the remnant, cleanse the land. He did this through the three deportations, and while they were in Babylon, and and there were some other cities that they were deported to, but while they were in distant foreign lands, God began to purify his people. So that when he called them back some 70 years later, they would be different. They would not be this wayward, apostate people that they had once been. I can remember in my life, uh, many years ago, my passion was to pastor. I had worked with teens. I had worked with young adults. And God was moving me more and more into pastoring. And when we came down here to start the church, God had me tent make. Now, if you're familiar with that term, uh, it simply means that God had me bivocational. So the bread and butter was going to be given to my family via my business and that God would grow the church. And at at some point, the goal would be to take me on full time and I give my full time like where I'm at right now from, from the church. And so there was an issue in my life. I alluded to it when I shared that embarrassing situation where I didn't stand up for my wife-to-be in the face of her uncle, and God had to teach me a serious lesson. But he opened my eyes, and he began to show me that there was a people-pleasing attitude in my heart, that I had a desire to make pe- want people to like me. And so when conflict arose... My tendency was to sweep things under the carpet and not deal with them or deal with them only to a degree and not fully. And God, in essence, was telling me, Mike, you want to be a pastor and you don't like conflict? Oh, hello. And so God said, in essence, was saying to me through circumstances, I need to place you in a job such as the one that I have had for many years, and I need you to rub shoulders with some rough people, and they're going to be hard to deal with. Used car managers can be hard to deal with. Many of them, they are not of integrity. They will try to get everything they can from you for nothing, 
And I constantly found them bringing my prices down. And it was, it was hard. And, and I was just saying, God, how, how do I grow this business? Because as it stands, it's like I can't. I feel like these used car managers, they all want everything for nothing. And God began to show me how to deal with these used car managers. And that I had to learn some of their own tactics. You know, the Bible says, um, answer, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will be like him. And then the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly or he will be wise in his own eyes. And I'm not going to go into the full explanation of this, but we, each verse, as far as answering a fool, comes from a different perspective. Do not answer a fool in the same way that he answers you, full of pride and arrogance. Don't answer him that way, or you're going to be, your character is going to be like his. But answer his foolishness with truth, because if you don't, then he will be wise in his own eyes. I needed to know, how do I answer these used car managers? Now, may I just say that not all used car managers are foolish and caught up in folly. I happen to be in a dealership right now, and that's not the case with the used car manager. I've known him for about 15 years, and he works very well with me, and I'm, I'm grateful for that relationship that I have. So not all used car managers are like this. Now, in part, I am saying this because my prayer is that that used car manager would listen to this sermon one day. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so great guy, though. Great guy. And God was refining me. And God placed... In my opinion, the worst kind of guy in my life, the worst type of person to rub those rough edges off in my life because if I wasn't careful, there would be conflict all the time. But the Lord had to teach me how to be firm, gracious, but say, I see your point. But you know what? The quality of my work is absolutely worth the price that I'm going to give you. I mean, do you want me to knock this much money off? Because you'll do that with the next guy, and he's going to be okay with it, but you're going to see it in his work, and you're not going to see it in mine. So my price is very fair. I found that when I started doing that, no one ever tried to bring my prices down, ever. I had to embrace conflict. I had to embrace the possibility that the used car manager would say, get out of here then. Then that's okay. Because I needed to earn that much for the jobs that I did. And I had to be okay with that. And God was rubbing me and, and, and creating friction in my heart. And as a pastor, learning to deal with conflict and not be a people pleaser. And so I'm going to ask you, you know, what is it that God, perhaps in your present situation, what is he doing to refine you? What is he doing to train you? What is he doing to maybe redirect you and call you to a greater, purer, more sincere devotion to Jesus Christ? You see, that is his goal. And as we move on, we come to a, a third stage of this book in which Habakkuk is absolutely confused. Say what, God? And that is a paraphrase of what he is trying to say here. Look at verses 
12 to 13. Chapter 1, 12 to 13. Oh, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. Oh, Lord, you have appointed them to execute them to execute judgment. Oh, rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous, the Babylonians? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And so Habakkuk says, even though the law is paralyzed to us, we are entrenched in our sin. The Babylonians are far worse. And yet, God, you are using them to conquer us? You're going to refine us through them? And this whole sense of God, this is unfair. This whole sense of God, this is unfair, is stirring within Habakkuk's heart. He's confused. You might even say he's angry. He's pounding his fist. God, how can you, a just God, allow this? <coughs> Let me just tell you a little bit about what Babylon did. <clears throat> 2 Kings 25.3 says the famine became so severe that there was no food for the people. That is when Nebuchadnezzar was ransacking Jerusalem. Lamentations says the hands of compassionate women had boiled their children. They became food for them. The temple and the palace were burned to the ground along with the houses of Jerusalem, 2 Kings says. Lamentations, again, says women in Zion were raped. Virgins raped in the cities of Judah. And the princes were hung by their hands. Sounds like crucifixion. God dealt very seriously with his people. Habakkuk, I am sure, recognized what was in store should God bring the Babylonians against them. And this sense of, but God, this is unjust. In 586, the third deportation, that is when Jerusalem was burned and leveled and the temple destroyed. Utter destruction. Zedekiah, one of the sons of King Josiah, was ruling at the time. He tried to throw off the restraints of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, not pay the, the dues, and Nebuchadnezzar sent an army against him. Zedekiah broke through the wall and, and ran for his life. Several miles away, by the time he reaches the area of Jericho, he is caught. A Babylonian soldier in front of his three children. Well, right before this happened, I should say, while he is there in Jericho, Zedekiah watches his three sons slaughtered before him. And that is the last scene that he ever sees in his life as a Babylonian soldier gouges his eyes out. And he is taken in chains to Babylon. 
Zedekiah refused to follow the Lord. And God brought swift justice. Wow. That is, that is painful. Really, God? That, that's, that's drastic. And some of you feel as if God is, is like putting a, a, a knife in your heart and he's turning it. And it's like, God, why are you allowing this? Don't you love me? I want to give you an illustration. How many of you have ever seen the movie The Patriot? Unclear play, okay. In the <clears throat> one of the last battle, the, the, the last battle scene, we see Mel Gibson's character as he is with the uh, the militia, the uh, for the most part the unpaid, un, untrained, I should say, untrained uh, army, and <clears throat> he is leading them. And they face the British in this, on this battlefield. And they begin the battle. And then all of a sudden, um, uh, Mel Gibson's character yells out, retreat, retreat. And all of the militia, who again, untrained, and this was the British's desire, if we can make, if we can instill fear in them, then they'll get out of the way and will wipe out the, the, the Americans. The militia turn and run. And as again, again, a movie is frame by frame. And I want you to just picture that if you've seen this, if you've seen this scene, picture them running as fast as they can in the other direction over this hill. Pause that frame. And you're thinking to yourself, They've lost this. What are they doing? I remember the first time I watched this, I'm thinking, this is how the movie is going to end? Are you serious? They're going to lose this battle now. And then the camera pans back to get a bigger picture. And guess who is on the other side of the hill waiting for the British? As the militia run down, they, they fall down to the ground and a huge American army is waiting for the British troops as they come over the hill and pick them off. The Americans win the battle. But at that very moment, you're dialed in to that one little circumstance as they're cresting the hill and you're thinking, we've lost. The Americans, we've lost. But it's only as the camera pans back, you see the big picture and you realize, oh, no. We've got them now. It's an ambush. And here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to, as you're dialing into this situation in your life, I want you to dial out. I want you to try and see the big picture. So the fourth thing that I want us to look at right now is God's big picture of all of this. And he says here in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Then the Lord replied, in essence, to Habakkuk's complaint, Where is the just God? Why are you allowing the, the wicked, the utterly wicked, the worst of the worst, to destroy us? At least there are some who are righteous in Israel. At least there are some who follow the law. And, and you're, you're going to let the wicked 
destroy us? This is God's response. Write down the revelation. Make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. What he is now going to speak, he's speaking about the future. It speaks of the end. And I'm just going to let you right know right now, the, that phrase, the end, in the Old Testament can refer to a number of things. Sometimes it refers to the end of the age, but many times it refers to the end of a nation or the end of a situation, and that's what it means right here. The end of the Babylonians. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he... Nebuchadnezzar, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. I'm going to come back to that phrase. That is a phrase that's quoted in Romans 1.17 that Martin Luther spoke on and called the church to from this passage, away from a salvation by works and giving of penance um, and indulgences, for salvation, he, he called them to faith and what true faith looked like. He's beginning to paint a bigger picture. Now go with me to verse 12. He says, woe to him. Again, him is Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, his troops, his armies, his people. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. He, in essence, is saying everything that the Babylonians are doing, it's going to come to an end because I have awesome, sovereign, overarching purposes that cannot be presently seen. It will come. Wait for it. But he talks about the destruction of the Babylonians. That day is coming. I will destroy them. Now understand, as we, if we were to get a broad panoramic view of the rise and fall of many nations and kingdoms, we would see that there are many. The Assyrians fell at the hand of the Babylonians. The Babylonians fell at the hand, <coughs> excuse me, of the, the meat, <coughs> of, of the, at the hand of the Medes and the Persians. The Persian Empire, it fell at the hands of the Greeks, Alexander the Great. The Greek Empire eventually split up into four kingdoms, and they fell at the hand of the Romans. And the Romans eventually fell at the hand of the Vandals, barbarians, etc. And it was destroyed. The rise and fall of many nations. And they play a part in God's big picture. Where is this big picture going, though? And God answers that question in verse 14. For. Is that what your Bible says? For. That means because. Why is all of this happening? Why is it that even now the Babylonians, they will be severely punished? They will fall. As a matter of fact, nations will rise and fall. Why? Because. Here is God's end game. This is where history is marching. And it is this in verse 14. For because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Now that is more than just people knowing, okay, well, God brought swift destruction upon the Babylonians. And when people know that, God's glory is spread throughout the earth. I'm not going to deny that there's an element there, but it is more than just Babylon. It is every nation when it falls. It is beyond that. It is even bigger than just simply the fall of the Babylonians. And it is this, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth. Is it going to be kind of a little bit over here in America, maybe a bit in South America, <clears throat> a little bit over there in Austria, maybe for a season in Europe, and just never touch any of the Muslim nations as we see it in our day today? Very few Christians in Muslim nations. Or is it, is it more than that? It, does it go further than that? Is, does the word fill mean more than just a sprinkling? Because he compares it in an analogy as the waters cover the seas. Or maybe as the waters fill the sea basins. From shore to shore, these sea basins are filled with water, replete they're, they're even wondering if the ocean uh, coastlines are going to recede and creep in further inland. But God's purposes are this, that there is going to come a time, and history is marching towards this, in which the glory of God and our knowledge of it will fill the earth as the waters blanket the, the, the sea basins. And and we need to understand it is not just, um, oh yeah, I know about the Lord. This knowledge here, I'm, I'm going to challenge you, it is more than that. It is more than just knowing about. What he is talking about here is the gospel truly spreading throughout the world, blanketing even the Muslim nations. This is how the earth will be filled with the knowledge, the intimate knowledge of the glory of the Lord. God is an end game. And here's what I want to challenge you with. And, and even as God focused on Israel for a season and did some things necessary in Israel to bring them to that point where the Son of God would be birthed in their very midst and the remnant would choose to follow after Jesus, Romans 9. You might want to write that down, Romans 9. And, and towards the end there, it talks about God's purpose for the Gentiles and the Jews and the remnant being saved. God is marching forward. He has, an, he has a goal that history is marching towards. Israel played its part. The church is now center stage. All eyes on the world. How are we living before the world? God is needing to purify his bride. God is needing to train us. God is needing to, for some of us, redirect us. I was reading um, George Mueller's biography. A.T. Pearson wrote um, uh, George Mueller's biography. George Mueller, the one in England who, back in the 1800s, had an orphanage and God met his needs all the time. Amazing, a man of prayer. And yet when he first started walking with the Lord, he was anything but. And he felt called to the mission field. Do you know what he did? 
He took a lot, you know, the lot, and he cast it. And he wanted to know, should I go to the mission field or should I not? And he cast the lot and, wow, I guess I should go to the mission field. And he, he, he kind of put little fleeces before the Lord rather than waiting upon God in prayer, which really was going to be the expansive ministry that he would have, that he became world-renowned, even to our day. When you want to read about a man of God who prayed and God answered miraculously throughout his lifetime, people turn to this man, George Mueller of Bristol. God had an overarching plan in George Mueller's life. And even in his immaturity, seeking unbiblical ways to be led by the Lord, God was so patient. And God redirected him away from the mission field. I mean, come on, that is like, isn't that supposed to be the the most godly place or thing that a Christian can do? I guess next to being a pastor, huh? Yeah, right. And, And so, of course, God would lead me to, I mean, if I'm going to be a, a mighty man or a woman of God, I've got to go to the mission field, right? And God was telling him, no, I need you right here, right here. And he redirected him. Why is God allowing these things in your life? Don't get so focused on the troops going over the brow of the hill. Step back and see the big picture. They're running into an ambush. God has a set purpose. His purpose is firm. It cannot be shaken or moved. And that purpose is a good purpose for your life and for his church as he is marching us forward so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. That's the big picture. So how how do we deal with this? The last point I want us to look at, chapter 3. How does Rachel Scott's mom deal with the tragedy of Columbine and so many others? 13 killed. Many seriously injured. The, The horror of seeing your classmates gunned down. How how do you put that in the right context of God's big picture? And so (coughs) Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 16, halfway through, he says this, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity. And and that is the end of the Babylonians that he's talking about. In which the, 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 the adversity, the, the difficulty, the injustices that are going on and the unfairness of all of it will be done. I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come in the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pens and no cattle in the stalls. In my present limited perspective snapshot of life, in my present moment, there is nothing that says hope. There is nothing that says reprieve. There is nothing that says there's good coming. Nothing. Except God's promise. That's it. That's it. 
And he says, even when there's no food in the pantry and you're wondering, how am I going to feed my family next month? God of justice, where are you right now? Habakkuk says, in those moments in which I see, in which I do not see the hand of God, he says in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. And there is only one reason why Habakkuk would be able to do that. Because the righteous one will live by faith. Chapter 2, verse 4. I will wait patiently because I believe my God. I believe that all things will work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I don't see that purpose. I see this little, I see the troops cresting the brow of the hill. I don't see the big picture right now, God. I just can't see it. I know your word promises that there is good. I know that you promise no harm. I know that in the end it will all work out, but it's just not working out right now. Habakkuk says, at that point, I will rejoice. And there is something about waiting patiently and being filled with faith. He concludes the entire book with this one verse, 19. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. When Paul was brought to this place in his life, and and he lived, if you will, on the brow of the hill. That was the scene that he lived out day in and day out. And we looked at all of his persecutions, and God said it's a buffeting spirit that he permitted in Paul's life. All of this persecution, all of these hardships, shipwrecked, Four times, a day and a night in the sea. I don't know what that's like. My family watched Castaway last night on Clear Play. Man, how would you, was it four years he was on the, the island? His only friend was Wilson. And, I mean, how do you do that? How do you, how, how do you a day and a night in the sea, like the, this, this could be it. What about the sharks? And he brings this to the Lord's attention three times. God, please, do I have to go through all of this? Really? And God's answer was to the point and so very simple. My grace that enables you to go on the heights, my grace is enough for you. Because God can see the end game. He can see the big picture, and we can't. And I don't like this, honestly. But most of the time, God chooses not to show us our big picture to us. And he simply asks, am I enough for you? And are my promises enough for you? Is my grace truly sufficient for you? Because Paul confesses 
that in his weakness, in which he must rely, he has no other option here, when he relies on God's grace in my weakness, then, leaning on God's grace, then am I strong. And I want to lay this challenge before you, church. In the midst of your severe difficulty for many of you, is God enough? Habakkuk came to this conclusion, you know what? God is enough. The righteous will live by faith. Beyond what I can see, he refuses to listen to the lies of the enemy, of the devil, the father of lies. He refuses to believe that God is unjust. He refuses to believe that God is unfair and that God is unloving. But he chooses to step back and say, God, you've got a big picture here that I can't see. And all I can see is the empty cupboards. All I can see are the empty stalls, the olive crop. It's not there. This season is a bust. The enemy has trampled and all but destroyed. But I will rejoice. I will rejoice. Apparently, Rachel Scott's desire, the biggest desire in her life, was one thing. She wanted to impact people. We get an opportunity to see a little bit of that before the end of the movie. And at the very end, you know, as the credits begin to roll and they have pictures and, you know, real-life snapshots of the family and so on, we hear that because of her testimony, thousands, thousands have been ministered to through her one testimony. And so you're left there realizing, wow, God, whatever the cost, Whatever the cost, I'll be willing to pay it. Because I see only the snapshot, the little picture, and you see the big end game picture that I can't. Can you trust him, church? Can you wait patiently? Can you choose to rejoice? Because he will enable you to rise above all of that adversity and mount up on the heights. Can you stand with me? Before we close in prayer, can I ask you this? Have you fully surrendered your heart to Christ? Because if you have not done that, you will buck his purposes throughout your life. You will listen to the lies. You will constantly be led astray. Has he rescued you? Has he lifted you out of your sin and saved you? 
Because if he is not, you have no firm rock and no firm hope that we're talking about this morning to stand on. And so I'm going to close in prayer and I invite you, allow him to reach down and rescue you and lift you up out of the miry clay and wash you off and cleanse you and set you upon his rock of truth, Jesus Christ. Father, Many of us, God, we see this little picture and it is a picture in our present of pain and struggle and difficulty and questions and deep hurts. And we just ask you, Father, right now, if you need to refine us, so be it. And refine me, God. if you are needing to train me, if you're needing to build things in my life and it's hard, then God, I permit you, please do this and allow me to rest in your grace so that when I am weak at that moment, I will be strong. If you need to redirect me, then God, show me the way to go. And I will follow you. And again, God, as, as I prayed before the sermon, if there are any here and they have yet to be rescued from the miry pit, please, God, Spirit of God, break through. And in your grace poured out, would you reach down and as they call out to you, pull them up and rescue them, God. You have a hope and a future for them. You have good purposes for all of us, God. Fill us with faith today, God, to endure because your big picture, those ultimate set purposes will come to pass in my lifetime. And should you tarry afterwards, But I will rejoice. God, thank you for my present situation. And your purposes are always good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you need prayer ministry this morning, I'm going to invite you to come up and the life group leaders would love to pray over you. Otherwise, God bless you. Have an awesome, awesome week. This afternoon, we'd love to see you at the Medieval Feast over at Rudder Circle. God bless you.